if you're loving your neighbour as yourself and you're living out this this whole new community ethic which we see in the scriptures where people regardless of their race gender are included and welcomed then i can't understand why you're even waiting for there to be a secular movement welcome to another episode of everyday leadership and i always love having great conversations with great people and today is no exception I have someone who navigates a space that I found really, really interesting around faith, around social justice. Someone who tackles a lot of like complex questions around real life as well. I'm bringing all those three different areas into it. And you don't know, I love my complex questions. So, but she is a political theologian. She was previously a teacher or two, or shall I say, same malicious college. And she's worked in Parliament. She's been a community organiser in Brixton, even though she's from Birmingham. We're going to get into that for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you're currently now doing your postdoctoral research at Durham University. I have Dr. Selena Stone in the building. How are you doing? Hi, it's good to be here. It really is. I'm going to jump into... In fact, let me chill for a minute. <laughs> when you were younger, when you were younger, when you were a teenager, what was a younger Selena like? The young Selena was very serious, I have to say. Way too serious. <laughs> I often say I feel like I'm living my life in reverse, that I have more fun now than I did when I was like 16. Um, I was the oldest of four kids, which I think had a lot to do with it, because you have a really strong sense of you have to be an example, especially as an like, oldest girl you're really like, you're kind of like a second mom type figure to your siblings. So I think I grew up with a very strong sense of, I got to watch what I do and set a good example. So Selena was serious, super intense, very worried about every tiny detail of her decision-making, which now is just like, it's not that deep, you're 16. <laughs> so that serious applied to like books, everything else, or okay. Yes, yeah, very into books. Didn't really talk to boys. I mean, they weren't trying to talk to me. I, I had a long school skirt on. So that, that means my parents had got me on purpose so that boys wouldn't talk to me at school. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> and so I had all the time for homework. And, you know, I had a really great church. I was very involved with church, which I really liked. That was a space where I felt like I could really be myself and... I got to speak at church and I had and really good youth leadership stuff happened at my church as well. So that was a really fun space. Lots of really good friends there. So that was where my real social hub was, was with my church friends. Were you a Christian or were you in a family of Christians? I was a Christian from very young. I can't even really remember not having a very open spirituality and openness to God since I was a young child. I remember being like nine and 10 and like really loving God, wanting to know God, wanting to understand God, loving to pray and just being captivated by the whole story about my, of my faith. Like I, I couldn't get enough of it. It felt inherently true, instinctively true to me, even as a child to believe in God and to be open to God so it was very easy and quick for me in terms of wanting to get baptised and, you know, wanting to pray and help others to explore their faith as well. Kind of funny when you look back at it, like, why is it that some person, some people will have that instinctive openness and others don't? But for me, it was very natural. So you talked about when you were at church in that environment, you felt free. And when you're outside of that environment, you were super intense and it sounds like, you kind of kept to yourself. What, at that point in time, when you were looking at your faith and navigating, did you think you would stay in the church and you would do something with the church as you grew up? Or were you thinking you wanted to be something different? I think that I loved God and I liked the church community, but I didn't want to be in church leadership. That was very, very strong in me from when I was a younger person. Like I, I enjoyed doing the little small groups that I did and and maybe part of it was having done some of it already by the time I was like 19, 20. I'd already done quite a bit of church stuff. 
So I didn't really want to do more of it. It kind of felt like I've done it all now. So like, what else am I going to do? And so I, I was really excited at the idea of, even as a teenager, I was excited by how can I do like lead, but not in the church space. It felt limiting. It felt like it was repetitive. And I was kind of interested and excited by the world, which in my tradition was painted as quite a dangerous place. It was like, you know, the world is this place of temptation and risks and challenges to your faith. But I found it quite exciting. (laughs) Or at least I thought I was quite (laughs) excited at the idea of engaging with this world, which was slightly difficult and slightly challenging, because I don't think I saw it as a threat in the way that I was maybe taught to see it. It actually felt quite interesting and I was quite hopeful about what might be possible if I didn't stay in the church bubble. I mean, that sounds very courageous because if you're growing up in a particular way of looking at things and that's kind of what the environment is around you and you're very much like, "Mm, nah, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to kind of explore it and live into that. What was it that gave you that courage to be able to have a different perspective? You know, I think it was... I grew up in Handsworth in Birmingham, which is like rough inner city. It's like the equivalent of Brixton in the 80s, apart from Brixton has gentrification <laughs> and Handsworth does, doesn't. So it's still very much how it was like years ago. And I think for me, like growing up in that environment, you kind of think, you kind of, you're aware of the issues around social inequality. You're aware of the need for changing the world somehow so that everyone has a fair chance. And I grew up with a very strong sense of that as a young person, that feeling of I didn't want to stay trapped in an area like this without the opportunities that I needed. I wanted to be able to progress and make something of my life. And that's not to say my parents hadn't progressed. Like They had raised a family there and they worked and they did everything and we had a great childhood but I also felt as if I went, I, there, there was more that I could do. And my parents wanted more for me. That's why they worked hard and did what they did. So I think I, I was very aware that the world was not a fair place. And so I think for me, I wasn't satisfied with this very adversarial relationship where my spiritual life had to be in church where I prayed and I connected with God and, and built a community with my other Christian friends. But then I didn't really care about what's happening in the community, that felt to me to just be completely strange. Because for me, all of that was my life. I couldn't separate out Selena at church and Selena when she's walking down Rookery Road. Now those things were the same thing for me. So I think I didn't get to separate those things. But I think some of the other people maybe who are more middle class, who grew up quite comfortably, could probably quite happily just enjoy that and not think about the bigger social issues that were affecting people like me and the people who lived in my area. So I think it it was more like an instinctive sense of I can't actually, what good is my faith if it just deals with a Sunday morning and doesn't really impact the rest of my experience? Is there a particular moment that you can recall that really sparked? In fact, when the spark broke out of the introverted, shy, serious Selena into the visionary, I'm going to change the world, social (laughs) justice kind of person persona? There's probably a couple of things that I think I think of. One is my dad has had a habit of taking me and my brother. I like, there's a year between me and my brother. And he got into this habit of taking us out of the sermon into to walk around our local area when the sermon was happening. And if you ever like have been to a Black Pentecostal church, the sermon, the service itself is quite long. The sermon can be good 45 minutes. And by the, by the time we were quite young, my dad had been in church for like his whole life. And I think he got to the point where he was a bit bored. And so he used to take us out. But what we do is talk to people and we kind of walk around the area and he'd say, you know, don't you think it's strange that we come into church every every week and we do our little church thing and it, nobody out here knows what we're doing? Like, there's no connection between what's happening on a Sunday, even though we're talking a lot about the power of God and, and the power of God to transform. When we look, when we come out the doors, everything's the same. And he would sow these little seeds in my mind about how this was not actually how it was supposed to be. There was supposed to be 
the goodness that we talked about, the goodness of God we talked about was supposed to be impacting communities through us as a church, through what we did, the projects we did, the work we did in different spheres of society. So he started to sow these seeds in my mind. And I don't know what made him do it because I don't know what made him do it, but he just, he was teaching us these things. So those seeds I think were watered over time. And I think there was the moment when I think that I broke out of my super introverted self was probably when I was 14, I went to a youth mission and churches from London and Birmingham would get together and do community projects and like youth programs in the summer. And I was asked to preach on the Sunday morning service and I was absolutely petrified, but also really excited at the same time. I remember preparing this this little talk, I like a kind of 10 minute sermon and going onto the stage and literally, I think I actually had been sick that morning, that morning. And as soon as I held the mic, all the nerves just left me. And I just spoke and it was like, I, I remember the feeling of it now, like 20 years later, the feeling of, oh, I this is what I was born to do. And feeling so comfortable on the stage, feeling so in the zone. And that was when I, th- I began to see myself as more than what I had seen of myself up to that point. Wow. What a way to, to break out in front of a crowd of I know, people. Crazy. That, that many people. <laughs> crazy. This is how, like, when you, like, black churches don't take their time. They're just, like, throw you in, you in. sink or swim. Do you know what I mean? I was like, what if I broke down crying on the stage? Like, what would you, what would have happened? So that's how, in fact, a number of people I know, that's how they learn to swim. They said, you get dashed in the room. They're like, yeah. Jump in, you'll be all right, like you figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) But something that is quite interesting, you said that as soon as you touched the mic, everything just kind of went away. And there was that alignment and that purpose, like it sounds like you were were meant to be there and you just forget the nerves and you just lead into that. How did that... um, grow into then you finally like moving to Brixton and you starting the work that you did there. In fact, how was it like being in Brixton? I remember going to Brixton the first time and thinking, I thought it would be like Handsworth because I only knew about Brixton because there were riots in Brixton in the 80s, the same time as they were in Handsworth. So when my parents had just got married, they were like living in the riots in the literal areas in Birmingham where they were happening. And the police had come to their house and wanted to see where they'd got all this new stuff from. And they'd just got married. So they were showing them their kind of wedding program to prove that they hadn't stolen their TV and all these kinds of things. And so I knew about Brixton because riots were happening at the same time. But when I went to Brixton, it was like, oh, this is not anything like Handsworth, you know, and mainly because there were so many white people. I was thinking, this is not what I was expecting at all. And quite middle-class white people as well. Like it was lots of professionals. And I was thinking, this is quite different. But the way I ended up there was actually very much connected to what I was just saying was I had gone to Bible college for two years, which is, I grew up in Assemblies of God. So I went to their Bible college for two years. And afterwards I had felt like I wanted to really do further study. So I had started a master's degree at King's College in London in theology and politics. And at the same time, a a charity in London had started this new programme where they were training people as community organisers. And at the same time, they were doing a placement in parliament. And so I got onto this programme and my placement as a community organiser was in Brixton. So I trained with Citizens UK and learned all about building local teams of leaders, listening, doing listening campaigns to understand local issues and basically building a strategy to run a campaign around payday lending in Brixton, which was kind of happening around the poorest estates in the, in the area. So these payday loan companies were like giving loans at ridiculously high interests and targeting like the poorest people in Brixton to advertise these services. And, my role really was to help to lead a campaign to change this. And so that was my introduction to Brixton. We're spending a lot of time pounding the pavement, talking with people, going to the local council, figuring out what was going on. It was really amazing. I loved Brixton a lot and I love South London, really. I lived in South London for like six years 
And Brixton was like, was one of my favourite places to be. And especially to work because you have quite a strong history of community activism. And it was really good for me to be there and particularly to see churches involved with that kind of work as well. Because it wasn't just churches, but for me, on a personal level, I thought this is what I've been looking for is seeing how churches can actually take a really positive role in their communities and doing the kind of political activism that might make long-term change. So it was really inspiring for me on a personal level, as well as quite good for me, like getting professional experience in this kind of work. Also like running teams, because I'm sure some of the people that you were looking after were like older than you as well. You're just stepping into this. It was, it was really, um, I really enjoyed it. it. It was when I started to see I could actually lead because it's one thing to kind of lead at your church and, you know, lead in your family, but to actually be put into a community and to start from scratch. And this was another part where I evolved again out of this introverted version of myself because I had to, most of my week was spent in one-to-one conversations with total strangers And this for me was like the ultimate push out of my comfort zone. And on the basis of those one-to-one conversations, identifying who are the people that might be part of the leadership team, who has the drive, who has the real motivation, who's got the skill set, who's got the relational networks and looking for those kinds of people. But I really, really enjoyed it. And I was always surprised when I organised like an event and people came. I was so always surprised because you just never know until you test it if people really are taking you seriously and and they really believe in what you're trying to do. So I really enjoyed the challenge of practising leadership beyond just talking about it and, you know, learning how to listen to people well and respect them and figuring out a strategy and being courageous about that but also been willing to adapt it if it's not quite working. It was I really enjoyed it a lot. I really did. What were some of the mistakes you made earlier on as you were navigating that and getting to know people and, and talking and building? That's a good question. And organising is, is an interesting kind of leadership because as an organiser, you're supposed to be like the invisible glue holding it together. You're not supposed to be the person in charge or the person who's at the front. So a lot of the time I was identifying other people and encouraging them to do things. I think one of my challenges earlier on was trusting myself and believing that I knew what needed to be done. I would second guess myself often. And I remember being trained by a really great guy called Tom in Brixton. And after we went to the council to make a speech about payday lending and the person who had made the speech was somebody who had never spoken publicly before. So I had to kind of coach him and get him ready for this. And it went really, really well. But afterwards, I was literally like saying to Tom, I don't know how that's gone. I was really stressing out and I don't even know now why I was. (laughs) But I think it was just that feeling of needing validation, needing someone to affirm that you've done something right. And I think that was really a challenge for me in the earliest times was second guessing myself. And I think some of that is being a woman in leadership as well. And I saw women lead growing up, but I don't think I saw them being the kind of primary person responsible who it kind of all depended on. So that that for me was was maybe at the root of some of that. But I think that was one of my challenges. And I'd probably say setting boundaries as well was just, I think, and that kind of flows from the first thing was because I was, second guessing myself and a a bit of a perfectionist I can confess that which doesn't help (laughs) you know have good standards but perfection is probably too much to aim for but I think I that concern about whether I could do it could then translate into overwork and a kind of anxiety which I had to learn to manage but but overall it was a it was a really great experience. Do you think that because of the so the responsibility you had from being first of four, being that second mom playing that role, you carried that with you as well into the work that you were doing now, where you always had that burning responsibility and always had to get things right. Mm, I think so, maybe. I think particularly, I think you learn to be quite empathetic when you're an older sibling and you're 
and you care about your family, I think that shapes very much how you then are with other people. As in, it has for me anyway. I can't say that for everyone. But I think I I see other people and I, I feel a sense of human, familiar, like a family connection with them for some reason. <laughs> Even people I don't know, I really wish them well. I want them to be well. I want them to thrive. And I think it, it may be that in that kind of, I'm wired to be like an older sister to just humanity, which is way too much responsibility. It's a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) And I remember my friend and mentor saying to me once, you have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. (laughs) And it was one of the most profoundly insightful comments that anyone's ever made to me about myself. And from that, I really did monitor it after he said that, because I was like, you know what, David, you're actually right. I really do think that more is, that I'm responsible for more than I should be. So I do have to rein that in. But how, how easy is that to do, especially as you're, you look around and there's so much to be done, there's such a need out there. How do you begin to hold it down and rein it in rather than... Mm take on that burden? I'm a deeply reflective person. And so I am quite aware of my limitations and the consequences for me if I don't limit it. So I'm, and I think I'm aware of even mentally in terms of my own mental health, how much I need to manage expectations that I put on myself. And I'm aware of that more than ever now. So I reflect every day. That for me is in prayer, but it's also, I go for a walk every day. Even when I'm not thinking directly about what I'm doing, I think it's kind of simmering in my mind and I'm able to, to kind of see how I how am I? I check in with myself a lot and see how am I actually doing? Am I doing too much? What's the direction of the work that I'm taking? Should I be taking this on or not? I ask myself that all the time. And I think that helps me to then just monitor what I'm doing to make sure that I'm not doing too much. And I also think what really helps is being connected with other people as well and seeing what else is being done. Because some of the anxiety that I've historically felt has been rooted in me thinking it depends on me. And sometimes I think, is there a little bit of a an ego thing going on there as well? I don't know what's all mixed up in it, but I think I have started to be, when you're aware that someone is doing this really great podcast over here or a project over there for me it just eases the stress because I don't have to do everything and I don't have to do it perfectly because there's a sister over there who's going to do a great piece of work there's somebody doing this charity over here there's a program over there and it it kind of I then start to see myself within a whole tapestry of good things happening in the world and I'm just making my own contributions I stay in my lane and I do what I do well And that's all I'm responsible for. And I trust that other people are doing what they're doing well. And if we trust one another and we give our best to what we do, I think we'll have a lot covered. That's how I think of it now. So I I love that idea, ideology around, I'm going to do me, stay in my lane. I'm just going to do theirs. And together we kind of have that overall. I think what tends to happen that I see, especially day and age is, you can easily get distracted by looking across to someone else and you lose focus on what you're doing. I guess I'm curious, how do you define what your lane is? Because when I look at it, the theology, politics, social justice, all coming together, it's a very unique way of kind of leading and approaching change. So how do you define it? How do you begin to think about the impact that you want to make when you combine those different areas together? I think the strands of my work and I think the strands of my work just flow out of who I am as a person and also the limitations that I have in terms of my time now. But I I see them as very much interconnected. So... For me, the the theological work that I do in terms of helping people to think critically about faith is very much intertwined with these concerns about social justice and having a kind of a nuanced understanding of life and particularly vulnerability and struggle and 
those things that we all have to deal with. So for me, the politics and the theology like is works very much together in that in the kind of theological work that I do. And similarly, when I'm talking about social justice more broadly, that is still very much informed for me as a Christian by my theological work. So although they might seem like very different pieces of work, for me, they're, they're coming from the same core. And that core is, is basically me and my own journey of exploring faith and social justice issues. And wherever I am, I'm bringing that with me. So in my old role, I was working in the Church of England Theological College And so into that space, I brought with me all of this, my research, my teaching was all in this realm of Christian theology, power and leadership in the church, social justice theories and theologies. And I brought that all to the Church of England when I was in that job. I was in the advisory groups. I was helping leaders to think about it in in their different areas around the country. And I brought all of that with me. And now that I've left that job and I'm now working at Durham, I'm bringing that with me there as well. And I'm doing the podcast and I'm bringing all of that there. So I think wherever I go, I I bring all of this with me. So it can look very different in different spaces. But for me, it's all coming from that same, that same root. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. An Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. When you think about the church and think about social justice, personally, it's an area where the church has been silent in a lot of key areas. I know obviously two years ago, Black Lives Matter and everything else happened and there was a lot more, people a lot more vocal. And then like most corporate spaces actually kind of want to be quiet again. And as someone who is navigating both behind the scenes, but also in front actually in driving this change, how do you find it as, not only as a, a Black woman, because again, that's another element of what you're doing, but you're a black woman who's leading faith and who's challenging and trying to be like, well, this is what we believe in. We need to practice this and very much action oriented. So how do you find it? <laughs> Deep sigh. <laughs> you know what it is? I think I also, and I sigh because I have multiple thoughts. For me, when I think about organizations, I see a kind of tension in that there's a sense of like there needs to be an urgent response and that urgent response can often be very surface level. So it's a black square, it's the diversity day, it's the tweeting about how terrible racial justice is. That's the kind of immediate short-term response that gives people a signal that says, we look like we're doing something about this, this issue. And this is the same for whatever kind of justice issue it might be in any organisation. But then that's not always combined with an actual serious long-term strategy for creating change. And so that's when I start to get a bit irritated because often I think these questions around justice and inclusion are actual culture problems within organisations. But rather than taking that approach, people instead do their public signalling that old how terrible this is, but then there's no actual action to change what's happening inside. You have some organisations who, will, for example, will focus on the optics and think if we get more representation in our Instagram page, then that might fix what's happening on the inside. I, I always say to people, the optics will take care of themselves if you deal with the deeper cultural problems. But the issue is that I think some of the pressure, I think honestly is, that sometimes the communities that are demanding this are themselves impatient and rightfully so because for decades, for centuries, there's been a kind of slowness to respond. But that kind of pressure for an immediate action is what sometimes leads to these short-term actions which are not actually dealing with the long-term problems. So I often find that frustrating because people want to stop with those short-term actions and not do the deeper work. Um, but I, I understand that lots of organisations have multiple agendas and issues. 
But I also think that people sometimes think, especially within the church space, that this is some political issue that they're being dragged into, this secular political issue, and lose sight of the fact that at the most basic level, if you're loving your neighbour as yourself and you're living out this this whole new community ethic which we see in the scriptures, where people, regardless of their race, gender, are included and welcomed, then I can't understand why you're even waiting for there to be a secular movement to actually take this seriously. So it's, it's it can be frustrating for me, and I do limit how much time I spend talking about this because I also say to people, I am a black woman. I've never I'm not an expert in diversity and culture change. And so I can give you my opinion on this, but there are people whose expertise is in culture change within institutions and organisations. And those are the people who you need to be employing to do this work. Because I don't really know how you shift the whole culture of an organisation. I can give you some thoughts on my experience of my of my work, but I haven't tested this tested any of this out in practice. So there's going to be a limitation to what I can offer, and I shouldn't have to because that's not my job. You know, like I'm not employed by you as a strategist, as a kind of senior executive leader, as a director of anything, and so I I can't be expected to do this additional quite important work for free first of all. <laughs> <laughs> or without having the training to do it. So I think that can happen in, in, in various places. That's such a one in my head. I was already, I was like clicking. I was like, come on, come on, forget <laughs> that. But you're in a position where because of who you are, because of what you do, because of the background you have with the PhD and the theory knowledge and all of that, naturally speaking, people will look to you to be like, well, you're in a position right now, you can you can step into that, you can share some light, you can share some some ways where we can actually maneuver. You make a really good point where it's like, well, one I could do, but that's not my role. And for me, that goes back into what you said earlier on around setting boundaries. I think so easily we can step into, we wanna do something and we lean into it and we can easily get used by institutions and organizations without recognizing that that's what's happening for us. So being able to have those clear boundaries is super, super important. But then also being like, but the other people who do this great work. So if you really are serious, then you bring those people in. If you're not, and you just want to say like you're doing something, this this in itself, the actions speak louder than words. So even the way that you approach that and the way you talk about it actually really makes, makes a difference and reveals do you really want to do something about this or do you want to look like you're doing something about this? Definitely. And I think I I learned that to set that boundary because I've been in meetings where I realised that you've called that a, a place has called together various black or Asian people, for example, to talk about diversity. And our qualifications are that we're researchers or we're academics in our particular field that has nothing to do with these questions and even if it does, we don't always have the the understanding of the organisation itself to know how you would implement changes. So then it just becomes a kind of very vague discussion, people sharing their feelings, their experiences, but there isn't a move towards a clear strategy. And that then just becomes a waste of everybody's time. So I think I'm quite, I've been in enough of, in enough of those conversations to know now that they're not for me. <laughs> I know what I can offer into the conversation, but if I don't see people who are directors and who have experience of creating culture change in the room to talk about the details of of what's going to happen. And this is me as an organiser now saying, we can talk about the theory, but what are the concrete actions that are going to happen on the basis of this? I think if I don't see that, then for me, it just feels like a, a conversation, but it's not leading anywhere. And I don't think we can, we have the time anymore to kind of just be satisfied with conversations. You've studied... You've done your PhD, and now part of your role is doing a, a postdoc. Like, what is it around like reading, research, like that side of things that you seem to really enjoy? I just, I love. I'm just very curious. I'm very curious. I like to understand. I like to. I like to understand. I like to explore. I like to know what's going on. That's really what. That's really what it is. Research is like is like moving past the 
the ideas to the like what's actually happening here and how can we interpret what we're seeing that's the side of it that I really like has the research revealed anything about who you are and your experiences over the years that's a really good question I think that my research has actually has helped me to process my experiences, definitely. And in, in a way, research has helped me to, to figure out how much I loved research. Like, I didn't really know that for, I didn't plan to be an academic, for example, or to be working in a university at all. I didn't even have this kind of job on my radar as a young person. I, and every step I've taken in terms of my study has been out of curiosity and a sense of calling to the work. Not because I thought, oh, I'm going to get a PhD and become an academic and work at Durham. That you know, they, they, There's not many jobs in my field anyway, so that wouldn't have been a wise plan to have <laughs> <laughs> written down if I was going to make one. But it's it's been very curiosity-led, actually. And so I think that it's, I, research has been for me like a playground of I've got to explore different areas and different thoughts and perspectives. And it's kind of been quite playful and enjoyable. Even my PhD, a lot of people hate PhDs. They hate their own. They hate doing them. They have mental breakdowns midway through. And it's, it's obviously very difficult, but I really enjoy doing it, which I didn't expect. And so I'm in the process of doing the research, I've realized how I'm wired, how my brain works. And it's it's really helped me, I think, to just understand what really makes me tick. New thoughts, new ideas, innovation. I love all of those things. But then does that curiosity also take you to implementation? Definitely. Like there's no for me, there's no point in doing this just for the sake of it. Like all of this is for the sake of so what now do we do? Whether that's a case of how now do we talk about this issue, what action do we now think is necessary? How can we make this thing, this particular thing right? How can we make this better? That's all, that is like driving me, my curiosity all the time. All the time. I'm always amazed and always been the smartest my face when I listen to people talk about their younger selves and talk about who they are now. And it's like, I see something, I'm curious about it, I want to learn about it, I want to do something about it. And you're just like going, 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 going. How do you look after yourself? And how do you slow things down? Because curiosity is, again, can also become a, a challenge sometimes. Mm. I mean, a range of things that I'm quite good at my own rhythms. So I'm like a daily yoga person. That is a really good way for me to just slow down my brain focus on breathing and being present to how I am and where I am right now. I'm like, I like doing some weights. That's really great for yoga as well. So I'm like, I like going to the gym. That shuts my brain down. Walking out in nature for me is my favorite thing. That is a place where I love to pray, reflect, talk to myself, talk to God. That's my, my happy place. And my family are amazing at this. Like, I purposely chose not to live on my own when I moved back to Birmingham because I didn't want to be in my head thinking all the time and and giving my whole soul over to my work. As much as I love it, I needed balance. So me and my brother live together and my sister lived with us as well. And they are amazing at just grounding me in reality. Like I have another brother who's nearby. A lot of my extended family are nearby me. I have old friends here as well in Birmingham. So it's 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 those kinds of connections which ground me in reality that get me out of my head. They are, and they won't let me take myself too seriously. <laughs> they mock me. They make me laugh at myself. Like they don't allow me to be Doctor Selena Stone. Like they just, I'm just their random sister or friend, and they have no reverence for me. For me, <laughs> you got a lot of family for that. They will humble you real quick. Listen, they don't care about my research. They don't care about any of it. They're just like, did you put that food on the on the stove? And that's it. Or they, they want to go cinema or do just normal things. So they they are a gift to me from God because they just keep they keep me human and normal and and they help me take they help me to take things not so seriously, which is so good. Mention around the fact that you tend to think about things a lot. How 
do you know when to listen to yourself when not to? What question? I think I'm getting much better at this now than I used to. When I was younger, I had no sense of my own voice because I grew up in a tradition where, in a church tradition where what you needed to know was God's voice. And God's voice became code for the pastors and the community's voice. And that you never get to know like what you think, what you want, what you need. And I remember even choosing my first degree was full, full of so much anxiety because I was I wanted to know what God wanted me to do at university until a woman at church said, how you are wired is how God wired you. So what do you want to do? What are you interested in? What is it that makes you come alive? And then I chose French and Spanish studies for university because I love languages. And so, but now I think I'm much better at trusting my own voice. And I think I've come to the point now where my first instinct is to trust my my own voice because it's been matured over time. And I think it's quite a wise voice. So because I'm someone who's very reflective, it means that when I experience something, I'm learning the lessons from it. Whether that is a work-related thing, whether that's a guy that I've dated, like whatever it is, I'm reflecting on it. I'm like, okay, what have I learned from this experience? What am I carrying forward with me? So I feel like I'm fine-tuning like wisdom as I go through life. And so it means that now I feel quite, that I, I feel like I can trust my voice because I've processed things, I've prayed through things, I've thought about things. So I, I feel like the Selena who's making decisions now is making excellent decisions in all areas and that's come over time. So I think that reflection point is like really key. When when I, I'm th- trying to think of a time recently when I haven't trusted my voice and I can't think of one. And that's why I say it must just be natural to me now to say, to trust myself. So the refinement over time and with so many experiences, you get to know and understand, which is, which is important. Also shows why it's necessary to be curious. Mm. Because in your curiosity, you learn so much rather yes. than the hesitation, which kind of holds you back. Yes. I was going to say, I think that's probably why I think people struggle to develop wisdom, I think, is because a lot of the times we do what we other people tell us to do and it's not really true to us. So we end up doing something because we're told this is what we should want, this is what we should do. And then we're living another person's life. So how are we ever going to gain our own wisdom if we're living a life that's not even ours? Like we have to learn to say, to tune into our what it is that we want and wherever that leads us, like it might not be a good thing that we want we, and we will learn that as we go. But I think we have to learn to test things in, in for me, I need to learn by experience. I'm not someone who you, you can just say, don't do this, it's going to be bad. I'm looking at the for the data, you know, and that's partly experience. <laughs> That's experience. I'm a, I'm a, I observe other people's lives a lot. I observe like, okay, so, so so let me hear your logic and see what you did and how did that work out for you? And I'm watching this person over there and I'm drawing wisdom from all of the things I'm experiencing through other people's lives as well. So I feel like I am, because you don't have time to live everything and make all the mistakes. So you have to learn to kind of, for me at least anyway, learn to draw from other people's journeys. That's a great way to live because that's that's the true wisdom. I think I forgot what the quote was, but it's um, I think it was around learning to learn from people's experiences so you don't have to go through the same mistakes. Yes, yes. Instead, make new ones. Yeah, that's the that's the real true wisdom. Yes. And you're so right. I think it's a lot of time it's we get told what to do, and we can follow that blindly, or we can choose, which is the courageous act of choosing. I'm going to do something slightly different. Yes, and that's not always easy. Mm. Is that perfectionist side still there for you? Or have you also managed to reduce a lot of that over the years? I mean, I'd say it's getting better, but it's not, (laughs) it's definitely still there. I'm laughing because I'm thinking about how many times I've re-recorded things in the last week because it wasn't perfect enough. And I think I know that I now, I hold myself to a high standard, which really is a good thing for my work in general because it means that my work is really good work. But sometimes you have to just say, this is good enough. <laughs> and I have to, I do now now say to myself, Selena, this is good enough. Send it, let it go in your mind. It's done now. Just leave it. How are you finding recording a podcast? 
But that's what I was thinking about re-recording. Like, literally, <laughs> I recorded this first episode about six times. What? Because Wait, I, how, I, I recorded, how long was it? How long was it? I mean, so the first time I recorded it, it was about 40 minutes. Right. Then I did it. Then I then I went, I literally, I would record it and then I would go through it in my brain for the rest of the day. And I'd be noting to myself, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I need to change that. I need to change that. And then I record it again. I did this five times and I recorded it the last time on Friday. And I said, whatever this is now, it's going out there on Sunday morning because I can't spend this much time <laughs> going over it. And would you believe it? Even when I put it out yesterday morning, I talked to my brother and then I, I wrote another note and I said, Selena, you're not editing this again. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. But to be fair to you, to be fair to you, and I would, I would say, I remember way back in the day when I used to, I used to do like little two minute, three minute videos and I used to overanalyze everything. My voice, what I said, what I didn't say, what, and that was there repeatedly. So it got to the point of like, you know what? This is me overthinking this. Yes. The more, the data that I'm going to get is when I put this out there and mm. how people respond to it. Yes. And a lot of times the, the rawness is what connects with people as mm. opposed to the, the perfectionist yes. and the yes. right. And that's what I've learned over the years. So that's going to be my one of my pieces of advice I want to give to you. Yes, I'm just grateful. you doing you, uh, you just, just talking about whatever it is you're talking about. Yeah. It's going to connect to people in amazing ways because, like you said, this is you talking. Mm-hmm. This is your voice. So everything else that you think you could say, there's always time to say it. Yes. This, what's what has been got to put on your mind to say rather than then just go for it. Mm-hmm. Don't overthink it. I appreciate that. You know, I'm a classic overthinker, so this is good. This is a word in season. how do you cope when what you pray for doesn't happen i Um, get really mad heard you before we started talking i told you my my wife's a big big fan of yours and when i started to listen to some of the things that you've done in the past you talked about like your mum losing your mum about four four five years ago how, and I know that's one of the hardest things for people to normally deal with. It's mm. like, I'm praying for this, and this is not moving the way I want it to be. And that's why a lot of people just lose their faith and can't connect to God anymore because it hasn't gone down. So how do you kind of stay faithful in those kind of environments? It's a really good question. So, I mean, I think the first thing I want to, I want to talk to is the expectations we set of God, which I think have just been really unrealistic and just untrue. So I think one of the challenges is that some of us are in settings where the only story we ever hear is that if we pray, God answers us and does what we ask. And that's just fundamentally incorrect. <laughs> like most people can give you multiple stories in which they prayed and it hasn't happened. So the first problem is that we're setting people up for huge disappointment, heartbreaking disappointment, because we're not telling the truth about the fact that God, prayer, answers to prayer is not that straightforward. So I think we need to tell the truth about that because people's really putting their whole life on the line for an answer to prayer that may not come. And we don't understand how this works at all. I don't think anybody can say they can. But giving that all really simple narrative is just not helping anybody. I can even for my mom, like she has stories of praying for having an illness before and it disappeared on the scan next time she went to the hospital, right? But then it comes to cancer and all of a sudden God somehow doesn't really answer. So I got very angry. I get very mad. I get so mad because I'm so hurt and so disappointed when these kind of important answers to prayer don't come. I get really, really upset and very angry and I will give God the silent treatment for as long as I need to But then also sometimes I angry pray and this is to me, and maybe I do this more than I do the silent treatment. I'm more likely to shout and rant at God than I am. (laughs) To be quiet, I feel the Holy Spirit saying, tell the truth. (laughs) (laughs) I will easily like rant and talk to God with no filter because I might as well tell God the truth because God can see it anyway. That's my first phase is, is the ranting. And... 
get it all off my chest. And this can take months. Do you know what I mean? This is not, when my mum died, I did this for about six months. It was either silence or it was angry, weeping, angry, crying, angry, talking at God. And then there comes a point for me normally when I get all of that out of my system and I'm like, okay, I've, I've said what I need to say. I've felt all my feelings. Now what? And in the case of, particularly when my mum died, I feel like I really, I didn't have any energy for holding on to faith. So I can't say to you that I came back to God and I repented and I said, you know what, we're going to keep going. I just exhausted myself <laughs> to the point where I was just, I was having panic attacks. I was, I was just beside myself. I was an absolute mess having lost my mom. And at the same time, I lost God. And I think about God dying for me at the same time that my mom did and, and losing all of my anchors at once. And I was exhausted after about six months of this kind of living as if God didn't exist and losing my mom at the same time. And I think, and I think God intervened for me in that moment. So I remember crying on my bed one day and I didn't know how many tears I could actually cry, but I was exhausted with grief. And my sister came in and saw me looking like a hot mess and was like, <laughs> like, whatever is going on, it's not working. Like you have decided that you're done with your faith and everything, but look at you, like, and my sister, my sister, not in that harsh a way, but she was just saying, this Selena that I'm looking at is not who you are. Like you're an absolute mess. And that day I had to go to work in Liverpool and I, there was a Bible in my hotel room and I opened it for the first time in, in ages. And as I opened it and I sat on my bed, I felt this wave of peace and this sense of, okay, we're now starting from the bottom now. And I think about that journey for me as my faith crumbled into the dust to it was absolutely nothing. And then for me began this process of, now that I'm starting from the bottom, what is it that's important? What am I going to put back into the box? And that for me was a journey of reconstructing faith, but that's that's an ongoing thing or has been an ongoing thing. So I think in terms of coping with unanswered prayer, tell the truth and don't pretend is the first thing I would say. And be kind to yourself because some of those unanswered prayers are devastating to the soul, to the heart, to relationships. And take it a step at a time. And I think, I think I'd say trust that even when you don't have the energy to hold on, that God can surprisingly be holding you anyway. And that, that has been my experience. The three points you shared were really important because it's, it speaks, one, to the fact that your sister would speak into you and you listened because there are times where I'm like, I listen to you. But every fact that she could do that and you listen is key. But that that angry, the angry conversations with God, like Lord knows how many times I've been there. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just pure, pure lamentations. Yeah, like yeah. this is just, this is where I'm at, and this is what we're gonna do. This is the conversation yeah. we're gonna have because I can't, I can't do anything else. So yeah, I'm with you in that one. And I think it just, it just shows how how human we are as well. To be honest, when we talk about having a relationship, a relationship means that at times when things aren't going to be great. And we need to recognize that fact as well, that it's not always going to be great. And, but we can, we can come back to it. We can, we can rebuild it. Yes. We can decide what we want that to look like yeah. as well, which you spoke to really well. And I think for me, the big challenge was not even like, does God exist? It was what kind of God exists? Because it was a question of, like I've watched this whole situation play out now. I've seen my mom get diagnosed. I've watched her suffer. I've cared for her. All along you've been here and you've done nothing. And I wasn't prepared for that to happen because I'd only ever thought of God as a kind of kind God who would intervene on behalf of God's children and, you know, who would deliver us from our struggles and heal us in sickness. And that was my expectation. So part of the process of rebuilding for me was allowing God to show me God's self again, because that had completely been broken down. And I didn't really know what to make of God after that. And that's an ongoing process. So I had to, I didn't even pray for or about much for a while after that, because I just didn't believe that it would make a difference. And at that point, I wasn't even angry. I was just, I was just, I just didn't believe that God heard prayer 
or answered prayer in any way. Or I thought maybe God did, but I couldn't really depend on that. So I'm kind of constantly figuring out how it works now. Like, what is it that God does? What do I take responsibility for? And that's an ongoing discernment for me all the time. Before we wrap things up, you've just launched your own podcast. What is it? What is it about? Where can people find out about it? Well, it's called Sunday School for Misfits. If you're lucky, then the idea of Sunday School conjures up feelings of a simpler time when life felt really straightforward. And even if you haven't been to Sunday school or didn't grow up in Sunday school, you probably remember a period in time when faith and life seemed pretty simple. Sunday School for Misfits is a new podcast hosted by me, Dr. Selena Stone, to explore the things nobody's taught us about life, faith, and spirituality. In the episodes ahead, we will explore the good, the bad, and the questionable of Christian beliefs, spirituality, and church life, and their impact on our thoughts, choices, and lived experiences. And the reason why I started this podcast is because I realised that many of my peers were going through similar faith crisis or figuring out what it was that they had inherited from their own upbringing and what they should hold on to, what they wanted to leave behind. And that we were a lot of us doing this in isolation or just struggling to have the necessary resources to do this well. So we just, a lot of us didn't have the resources for critical thinking or for thinking about our faith in a way that was honest and true. And so that is what made me think I'm going to start this podcast this autumn. So the first episode came out on Sunday the 16th, which is just laying a bit of a foundation for what we're going to do. And I'm really figuring this out as I go along, especially because I know all the different groups of people who this might speak to and also knowing how savage the internet can be. So we'll see, we'll see how it goes. But it's available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. And the plan is that I'll release an episode every week dealing with some other issue in theology or in experiences of church and thinking about the impact they have on our lives for good or for bad and how we can figure out what we need to embrace or hold on to as we get older in life. And for some of us in faith. Live your quotes. That's the name of the newsletter that you need to subscribe to. Go on www.everydayleadership.co.uk. Subscribe to Live Your Quotes. It's a bi-weekly newsletter that comes out with a quote with some information on how I'm looking at that quote, how that relates to my life to make it more real and authentic and come alive for you. As well as bits and pieces, it might be books I'm reading, it might be some other content I'm tapping into and some bits and pieces around the podcast. It's a nice, short, succinct newsletter, which I know you're gonna enjoy. But to enjoy it, you need to subscribe to it. So again, if you go to the podcast website, www.everydayleadershippodcast.co.uk, you'll be able to get access to Leave Your Quote newsletter. Now let's get back into the episode. Next question to you would be, how do you define leadership? Hmm. I think it's about living in a way that inspires others and enables them to live out their best selves in the world. And to, yeah, I think that's what I think it is. Inspiring other people and allowing them to live out the best version of themselves in the world. That's not about selfishness at all, because our best selves are as much invested in others as they are in ourselves, in the success of our communities, as well as our individual growth and fulfillment. And for me, the work that you do, how you show up, the not only the research, but the action behind the different things that you do, I find inspiring. Thank you. So you're already living out that, that purpose that you said you wanted to do. The more you lean into your curiosity, it seems like the more the world changes in a positive mm. way because you're constantly nudging at the system and like, oh, we're not going to do that or... This is what the theory is behind that. How can we get to change this in this particular area? And that is such a that is so key and crucial now more than ever. 
So I um, really appreciate you sharing some of your experiences leading into today and I've absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I've had a really great time. So much fun. Pleasure. It's leadership. More information that you want to find about Selena Stone will be available in the show notes as well. You can check out more about all the great writing, the podcast, everything else that she's birthing and bringing out into the world. If you don't want to miss out on that, I'll see you all next week. <laughs>